We have sung some beautiful hymns, one of particular significance to me personally, and I would think also to, to Sandra at this time, beauty for ashes. What beautiful thoughts are expressed there in terms of the exchange that we make, if you will, when we leave this world and go to the next if we are prepared for that exchange, for that translation. Beauty for ashes. I remember getting on a plane or about to get on a plane in Houston to go preach a gospel meeting in Alabama and got the call from my sister that my mother had passed away. The plane was late, so I didn't get on it. Otherwise, I would have been on it uh, if it hadn't been late. But that Sunday morning in Houston, I preached a sermon entitled Beauty for Ashes before we left to come to Smithville to preach my mother's funeral. And I could preach her funeral with confidence as we can have a celebration of life tomorrow for our departed brother, John Henderson, because of the lives that they lived and so many others have lived. And it is hard, and it is difficult, but oh, how much more difficult it would be if indeed we did not have that blessed hope and that wonderful assurance that is offered to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I appreciate Tommy's comments concerning John's passing and certainly echo those sentiments and uh, our prayers and thoughts and our deep love with Sandra and Laura during this very, very difficult time. And oh, indeed, will John be missed. Words cannot express just how deeply he will be missed. Jude, very short, one-chapter book, but highly significant, as is all of the New Testament. I want to read Jude 1 through 4 as we begin our study today from God's Word. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned uh, some time ago that we were going to begin a series on Sunday mornings based on a series of lessons from the Memphis School of Preaching lectureship theme this past March. I thought it was an excellent theme, the New Testament Christian. The New Testament Christian has Jesus Christ and knows Jesus Christ as the object of his faith. That's where we began last Sunday. We're going to look at various topics on various subjects that are vitally important concerning the New Testament Christian. Of course, the initial lesson was what is a Christian? And we need to be able to define Christian, biblically speaking, as we did in that initial lesson. And then the New Testament Christian knows Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. But today I want to look at this topic. Based on one of those lessons presented in that lectureship by 
faithful gospel preacher and good brother and friend, Paul Shane. His topic was the New Testament Christian contends for the faith. And as I mentioned in Bible class this morning, I have been struck really recently by, by how much there is in the New Testament that admonishes every child of God not to be an observer, not to be an observer, but to be a contender. Not to sit on the sidelines, but to contend earnestly for the faith. We're studying Galatians in Bible class on Sunday morning, and there is so much material there about the importance of contending for the truth, for the faith. And then on Sunday night, we're looking at lessons from Second Peter. So much is said there along these lines. But so much is said throughout Scripture, as we've just read from the first four verses of the one-chapter book of Jude. And I want you to notice something that Jude had intended to write, he says, about the common salvation. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. Well, someone might say, well, I didn't think salvation was common. It's not. Not in the sense that we sometimes use the word common, as in commonplace. No. Obviously, Jude here means the common salvation pertaining to all mankind, to all accountable human beings. The gospel is for all. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all, Paul wrote in Titus 2, beginning at verse 11. That's obviously what Jude alludes to when he says the common salvation. That is, it's for everyone. The gospel is for all, and it is to go to all. And what a marvelous subject the common salvation is, because salvation is absolutely crucial to all of us to learn of it, and to adorn the helmet of salvation in becoming children of God. But once we have done that, there are things that can enter our lives that would cause us to deviate somewhat from talking about the common salvation, as was the case with Jude, and to address something that was absolutely crucial to these Christians to whom he wrote, and thus to Christians for all time, because while circumstances change, principles do not, and while forms of error differ from generation to generation perhaps, error nonetheless is with every generation, tragically. And therefore it behooves us to understand, as Jude understood, the importance of writing about contending for the faith and about contending for the faith. In other words, Christians must apply the warnings from Jude, the warnings from Paul, the warnings from Peter. All of these warnings we must apply as God's people to the 21st century circumstances. The admonition to contend for the faith is current, will always be current for as long as time stands. And we dare not be casual observers of those who are in the fight. We must be a part of it. What is the faith, we first ask? What is the faith? Well, listen to some passages where that expression, the faith, is found. And when we see those expressions in these various passages, it clearly gives us insight as to what the faith truly means. Romans 1 in verse 5, the Apostle Paul writing to those Christians said, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith 
among all nations for his name. Obedience to the faith. The faith is something that can be obeyed, something that must be obeyed. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, we find these words, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. That is the eternal phase of the kingdom of God. We're going to enter the eternal phase of the kingdom of God through tribulations, but in those tribulations, in the midst of those tribulations, we've got to continue in something called the faith, don't we? And then in Acts 16, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. We're studying Galatians, and we have already noted in Galatians 1.23 But they were hearing only, these churches of Judea, about the Apostle Paul and his preaching that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches, here it is, the faith which he once tried to destroy. What was Paul persecuting? Christianity. Galatians 1 says he persecuted the faith. So we clearly see that the faith is equivalent to Christianity. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, Paul writes, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, as the New King James renders the passage. And on and on we could go. How many faiths are there? Ephesians 4, 5. There is one faith. It is the faith. And clearly from these and so many other passages that could be cited, the faith is equivalent, as we have said, to the Christian faith doctrine, the doctrine about Christ, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine that Christ authorized. It is Christianity. That is equivalent to the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith, Jude writes in verse 3. But then he says, which was once for all delivered. Delivered. We don't need to overlook that word delivered. Because it tells us that the faith was divinely given. Man didn't come up with it. It is from heaven. It is from God. It is delivered to man. Man didn't invent it. It is delivered to man by heaven itself. That is, it's authorized by heaven. It is communicated, has been communicated to us, and is written down now as we discussed this morning in Bible class upon the pages of God's Word. All of God's Word is inspired, Old Testament and New, but the New Covenant is the faith to which we are amenable, and it has been divinely given. Brother Wayne Jackson commented on this by saying, the expression, was delivered, is a passive voice, which reveals that the doctrine of Christ is not a human production, rather it is from heaven. And it was once for all delivered. And that once for all phrase indicates literally once for all time. There will never be a time, there will never be a circumstance in which anything more than what I hold in my hand in the New Testament is ever needed or will ever be given. Is it the case that there have been those who claim that there have been revelations since this was given? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And we're studying, even now on Wednesday nights in the video series by Dave Miller, an excellent series, uh, Islam 
and contrasting it, and it is truly a contrast with Christianity, and the Quran, and the claim that the Quran makes to be divinely delivered. No, the faith, Christianity, was once for all time delivered. And what came much later, through supposedly through Muhammad, was not divinely delivered. As kindly as we can say it, and Dave Miller, I believe, has has done just that, kindly but firmly, contrasted in such a beautiful and significant and clear way the document, the Quran, with the Word of God. Joseph Smith claimed to have a revelation after this was given, which is called another revelation of Jesus Christ. But this book says there could be no other. And remember in Galatians 1, though we, Paul wrote, or an angel from heaven should preach any gospel to you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. You see, we must contend for the faith. There is no need for additional revelation. And we can know by examining the faith that anything that claims to be additional revelation cannot be divinely delivered because this proves itself to be divinely delivered and those that have come later are clearly the works of men that can be objectively viewed as such when you contrast them with what is obviously an inspired revelation from God. And beyond that, the faith was delivered to whom? To the saints. Once for all time, delivered to the saints. Do you recognize what you have had delivered to you if you're a Christian? Think about that. Have you thought about, have you thought about that and what, that's, what that suggests? That if you're a saint and a Christian is a saint, a saint is a Christian, that's the, that's the definition, you have had something delivered to you that is more precious than anything and everything in this world combined and worlds combined. There is nothing that approaches the preciousness and the importance of what has been delivered to you, not to the preacher, not to the elders, but to the saints. Once for all time, delivered to the saints. What does that tell me as a saint? Oh, it tells me I have an awesome responsibility to handle this properly. There could not be a more awesome sobering responsibility ever given to anyone than the responsibility that I have as a saint and that you have if you're a saint here this morning who's obeyed the gospel of Christ, the responsibility you have to handle it properly. You remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? He charged him, oh, Timothy, guard, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is, what? Falsely called knowledge. We have a lot of things in our world today that are falsely called knowledge. A lot of things. Evolution is falsely called knowledge and is presented as though if you don't believe it, you're the biggest ignoramus that ever walked the earth. If you would dare refute evolution and claim to believe in creationism. And there's been so much compromise that I saw statistics the other day, and I don't have them with me now, that indicated that 
there's a higher percentage, well, there's a higher percentage, I think, from looking at the statistics of those who, who believe in evolution than some time back, but there's a higher percentage of those who have embraced what is commonly called theistic evolution. That is, they believe, they believe, there's still a pretty high percentage that they believe in God, but they believe God had a part in creation, that he had a part in it. That's theistic evolution. In other words, God... God guided the process from that one-celled whatever in a primordial soup, and he guided that process until ultimately here we are. Well, God didn't guide any process. God completed the process. But there are so many, it seems today, who are, who are hesitant to reject God altogether and creation, but they want to hold hands with the evolutionist and the creationist at the same time, and so they they land somewhere in the middle and claim that evolution is true, but that God guided the process. That's theistic evolution. And that is falsely called knowledge because God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. And the days are not millions of years, but they were literal 24-hour days. And if time permitted, we could study that effectively and conclusively and to the objective mind convince you that those days were 24-hour or solar days. The evidence is overwhelming to the objective observer. But I say that to demonstrate that we live in a world that is filled with knowledge that is falsely called knowledge. And Paul went on to write, by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. And so the faith is the gospel the doctrine of Christ. It was divinely delivered, and it is in your hands if you're a child of God this morning. And you have an awesome responsibility. But really, you have a wonderful privilege. It's the way we should view it. You have a wonderful privilege to contend for the faith. But now let's ask this. What is contending? What is contending? Well, Webster defines it as quote, to strive or vie in contest or rivalry or against difficulties, to strive in debate. But the Greek word from the New Testament that's translated earnestly contend signifies to contend about a thing as a combatant, as a combatant, as one who is in combat. And the word is a compound verb from which we get our English word agonize, to agonize over something. And it, in, it indicates a vigorous combat. But notice it's in the present tense. And in the present tense, it indicates that this vigorous combat in which I'm to be involved as a saint to whom the gospel has been delivered is ongoing in nature. It will never end until I do. It will never end until I do. Until I'm gone or until the Lord comes again. Wayne Jackson again gives an excellent overview of contending in four points. He says contending for the faith is not making laws for God. That's not contending for the faith. Secondly, contending for the faith is not to be equated with brutality. No. Three, contending for the faith is not marking everyone with whom you have the slightest disagreement. That's not contending 
for the faith. And fourthly, contending for the faith is not characterized by favoritism. You contend for the faith, the same with everybody. It's not characterized by favoritism. And I think those are excellent statements. Contending for the faith is what? It's standing for the truth against all departures from the truth. That's what it is. And truth is knowable. John 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And truth sanctifies. John 17, 17, sanctify them through your truth, Jesus prayed to the Father. Your word is truth. And one must abide in that truth. One must abide in the doctrine of Christ. John, in 2 John 9 through 11, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. We've got to worship according to the truth. John 4, 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And one must love and obey the truth in order to be saved or one will be condemned. Listen to the words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. And with all unrighteousness, all unrighteous deception rather among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What a tragic end for those who do not love and obey the truth. And one should not only live by the truth and contend for it, but one should be willing to die for it. That's how strongly we must feel about the truth. But with what attitude or spirit should the Christian do that? With what attitude or spirit should the, should the Christian contend for the faith? You see, it's a false accusation to claim that anyone who truly contends for the truth has a bad attitude and is just, is just ugly and brutal. We've already seen Wayne Jackson's statement that says it, it's not equated with brutality. No, there has to be an attitude or a spirit with which the Christian contends for the faith. And I do not know of a better example in Scripture, other than the Lord himself, of course, than Paul, who gives us the proper attitude in contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Listen to some passages that reveal that wonderful spirit that he had. Acts twenty thirty one. In the midst of his exchange with the Ephesian elders at Miletus there, he said, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every one of you night and day, listen to it, with tears. I warned every one of you night and day with tears. And in Philippians 3, 17 through 19, there he wrote, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern 
Here's the contrast. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you, here it is again, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. I tell you about them without mincing words, but I tell you in deep sorrow and with tears, weeping over them and over the consequences of following their teaching. What an attitude. Do you think elders in the church enjoy exercising discipline toward those who need to be disciplined and the ultimate discipline that that they are charged in Scripture to exercise in withdrawing fellowship from those who refuse repeatedly to heed the admonitions to repent and to come home, those who are living in sin? Do you think the Apostle Paul enjoyed writing to the church at Corinth in that first letter and telling them some of the things that he had to tell them? And as a part of what he told them near the end of all of that, after telling them these things, he said, whatever you do, do it in love. And then he said, my love be with you all. I love you. And therefore, I'm telling you that you need to correct some things. You see, that's contending for the faith with a proper spirit. And that's why before I was appointed as an elder in this congregation, I sat with the elders, and especially with John and J.C. in those early days of my tenure here, and I heard them agonize and talk about those with whom discipline had already been exercised and, and those who needed admonition, and I appreciate so very much the attitude that they had about contending for the faith. May God give us more men in the leadership in the Lord's church who will do just that, but with the Spirit as they manifested it and as Paul did. Warning, yes, we must, but weeping as we do. And I believe that the eldership here currently, certainly has as its determination that same kind of spirit, to carry on that kind of spirit and to follow carefully what God has charged us to do. You see, if the Christian is convicted and converted, the Christian, not just the eldership, but if the Christian is convicted and converted, he will contend for the faith. Christians are soldiers in the army of the Lord. And we're in a battle with a vicious and powerful adversary, the devil. And I want to close with the statement that our brother Paul Sane made in this excellent lecture on this subject. He wrote, if a Christian fails to be strong in the faith, is not knowledgeable in the word, does not wear and use the whole armor of God, does not stand firm in the faith, neglects to preach and teach the whole counsel of God, then he is failing faithfully to serve God and is in rebellion to his commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. The result is that people will no longer hear and know the pure truth of God. They will hear and believe lies regarding salvation, 
and being acceptable to God. In this state, they may believe they are secure in Christ, when in reality, they do not know him and his will. They will be unable to obey God fully, not having heard the unadulterated gospel. And then he concludes, may God help all Christians to learn, respect, obey, and teach the truth. Nothing but the truth, and nothing else but the truth. One thing's for sure, you can't contend for the faith if you're not a part of the faith. That is, if you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ. And it's our fervent plea with you this morning that if you haven't done so, you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ. With all of your heart, act upon that faith by repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you need to come home to your first love as one who has departed from the faith and needs to repent in a public way, we plead with you to come home. And let us pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you supremely and who will forgive you completely as we stand to sing. Will you come?